With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Because we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Bell Red Radio. My name is Matt Weston, and tonight I'm joined by the biggest, fattest, and drunkest one of them all, BFD. Hey, how's it going? Woo! It's cold outside. These nipples to cut glass. Hi! <laughs> it is cold. And did you also, I knew that, but did you know that the Philadelphia Eagles are the 2017 uh, world champions of everything? Yay! Yay! All hail Nick Foles, your new quarterback, God. <laughs> All right, so are you happy with the outcome of this one? I love it. I, You know, I, I've seen enough of Tom Brady in my life already. And uh, the, the thing I like most about it, it wasn't that the Patriots lost the game, the Eagles won the game. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was the, the absolute best part of this uh, of the whole thing. It was just it was just a beautifully played game by the Eagles, beautifully game planned. Doug Peterson did a, a fantastic job. Evidently Nick Foles, I learned today, Nick Foles made the play call. Yeah, so man, that's just all sorts of exciting stuff all around for them. Yeah, I'm excited for all the children they're me named Philly Special nine months from now after that play <laughs> call there. <laughs> oh my god yeah they're uh, all of a sudden like 15 years why are there all these kids named Foles <laughs> what kind of name is Foles as a first name <laughs> <laughs> or there's gonna be a lot of like really uh, good emo bands well man they actually kill the emo music genre in Philly that has uh, put out some really good bands out there because they're all very happy that they got a Super Bowl now and that was the crux of all their angst you know oh my gosh Big Daniels backed out of the Colts' job. Yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I want to. Let's talk about that. Then let's talk about the Super Bowl first. Um, so I mean, yeah, like you're saying, like I, I really did love this game. I think on both sides, like both teams played, you know, really well. Uh, I think they both had, you know, New England dig out coach. They kind of coached really weird in the first half of the second half. You know, they went back to doing what they do well. Uh, but I want to start, you know, with the Eagles game plan and, you know, more specifically Doug Peterson's aggressiveness because we saw the Jaguars, you know, lose 20, lose 24 to 20 to New England in the AFC Conference Championship. And, you know, one of the reasons why they lost that game was they got really timid. They didn't take enough shots downfield against one safety looks. They kind of ran out of plays. And, you know, part of that is that you have a like quarterback and you're me hamstrung in some sorts of ways. But, it would have been just as easy for the you know Eagles to do the same thing with Foles. Say, well, we have Foles at quarterback. We can only do so much. But the Eagles didn't do that. Peterson didn't do that. Uh, they constantly threw the ball downfield the, from the Minnesota game on. Uh, they did the same thing against the Patriots in this one. 
and he was aggressive and you know, really pushed it the entire game. Uh, this postseason, they had three fourth-down conversion attempts. They converted all three. The regular season, they had the third, second, third most fourth-down conversion attempts, and they converted 60.5% of them. Uh, the biggest one for the regular season was, of course, that one that led to the win in Los Angeles, which was, of course, very monumental mental for the number one seed that they had. They gave them a, a shorter and quicker road to the you know, Super Bowl that they you know, ended up winning. And so I, I just loved, you know, Peterson not really taking some of the gas. The, the fourth and two play call was great. That fourth down play call that set up the game, the field goal to put him up by eight was great as well, too. And I think he was by far the best coach in football this year, even better than McVay was. I think he also should have won the MVP for this game, too. That who should have won the MVP? I'm sorry? Doug Peterson. Oh, Doug, oh yeah, if you can give it to the coach, right? Yeah, because this was all about um, that game plan. And we talk, we talk about it often on the show, about how, you know, there is such an underlying conservative nature to NFL coaching. And Doug Peterson threw that way out the door, the window. He, he defenestrated conservative coaching. I'm just going to put it that way. And then everybody can go look up what defenestrated means. Um, he, he, all that was gone. All of a sudden he's taking Nick Foles, his backup, and he's basically running a very similar game plan as he would have with Carson Wentz with the RPO where, where Nick Foles was so uh, successful when he wasn't, you know, his, his first go with the Eagles. Um, and he just, oh, it's just beautiful to watch. And that's the sort of thing. The ultimate difference maker in that game was Doug Peterson because he was so aggressive, because he didn't back down, because his backup quarterback was in there, because he was willing to take risks, well-calculated risks. And get you – I mean, really, let's be honest. Does, does Bill O'Brien go for any of those four downs? And the answer is no. No. And that's – you, you, you have to take risks in football to be successful. And, and Peterson pulled it off with the palm. I mean, you're not going to go 100% every time, but, man, goodness gracious, he won because he treated Nick Foles like he was, a, he was, like he was an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm really, also, like, really hopeful, too, as well, for the state of football through this game. Or, I mean, like, you have teams who do some interesting things, and I think the more interesting part of football is just roster construction, where you have teams say, well, there's only a limited number of resources, we really do certain things, so we're going to ignore this position group, focus on this one, this will be what we're best at, and we're going to run this scheme and offense, you know, kind of based off that. Uh, and I kind of learned that from watching Carolina play, whenever they had their big 15-1 and run, lost the Super Bowl. And that's kind of what's, like, the most interesting part of it. But, like, schematically, you know, a lot of teams are pretty much the same. Defensively, a lot of teams are the same. And, you know, a big reason why is because guys don't want to get fired. If you take risks, you're more likely to get fired. Uh, there's that constant inbreeding of head coaching where you see the same guys come in and stay in the league forever. You see them get jobs just so their sons can get jobs. A great example is Dean Pease getting hired as the defensive coordinator mm-hmm. of, the Raven, uh, of the Titans, and he came out of retirement to take that job. And the main reason why it seems like is because his son, who's a high school football coach, is now going to become an NFL coach. And that was kind of like the, the back table deal to, to make that sort of thing happen. And so there's so much nepotism in the game. And so, like, when you see a team like the Eagles, you see Peterson, you know, he started off coaching high school football. It's been, like, a 10-year journey for him to, you know, win a Super Bowl, but, you know, it took him nine years to get an NFL head coaching job. Uh, like, there, he did, like, he was so aggressive. He did so many unique things. He did so many different things. Uh, like, it was just, you know, awesome to watch, you know, this team, uh, you know, these past, you know, this past, this entire playoff run. And, like, I'm – Usually it takes, like, one team to win the Super Bowl for other teams to kind of follow suit. 
And so hopefully, like, this isn't just some, you know, short period, some short, short little glow for the Eagles. Like, hopefully they're good for a while. Hopefully other teams want to compete and take what they did in this run and do things differently, like start going for the ball on fourth down, uh, start making more trades, uh, start building your roster, you know, in specific ways and find kind of free agents that are veterans and you know, put them better spots to play. Um, and just so they had so many different things that I haven't really seen before in the game that they did. I'm really hoping that we see other teams you know, follow suit as well, too. Yeah, and, and Rivers brought this up, so credit where it's due. But what, what we've really seen from what we're seeing from the Eagles and the Patriots have kind of been doing it in their own way for years is you see that they do such a great job using the talent they have on the roster to fulfill those roles, right? And the, the Patriots have done a fantastic job. Not, they have Gronk. I mean, Gronk is, is clearly a Hall of Fame quality tight end, but Danny Amendola, you know, Julian Edelman, who was a special team, was, was, didn't he, wasn't he drafted as like a cornerback? So, you know, these guys, they use that talent that they have perfectly. They use it to exploit the matchups. James White and Deion Lewis out of the backfield. It's all about the matchups and putting out there guys that are hard to cover because your guy's too big and slow to cover that guy. And what we're going to have to see after this, because it's been, it's been coming for a while. We've talked about it a little bit. And thanks to Rivers for bringing it up. Defenses are going to have to adjust. Because what we saw is we saw a lot of scoring, and defenses get tired. And what, what are we going to see defensive coordinators do? When we often talk about some of the up-and-coming minds in the game, almost every one of these dudes is offensive-minded. Like maybe Steve, Wil- Steve Wilkes, uh, who's now the head coach of the Cardinals, maybe he's like a defensive-minded up-and-coming guy. Can you think of anybody else? So look at where we're bringing guys out of retirement. We've got you know, Wade Phillips. Uh, we got a lot of old dudes on defense who are now going to try to have to come up with a way to counter this offensive explosion. And, Matt, I think we're going to see a really kind of shift in offenses for a couple of years, and I think defenses are going to really lag. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not there all the way. I mean, we just saw Jacksonville hold New England, you know, 24 points in, in, you know, up there in Foxborough. We just saw – the Eagles and Falcons play, you know, like a slobber knocker game, uh, you know, in the, in the divisional round, the conference title, you know, being bigger scoring than it was because of the pick six as well, too. Like, I mean, obviously this is a game with, you know, 1200 yards, whatever it was combined title, but I don't think we're, I don't think we're, we're going to have some sort of like, you know, huge leap in scoring. I mean, the biggest reason why both these teams scored was one, the Patriots have a terrible defense. They can't rush the passer. They stood no chance of rushing the passer against a really great offensive line. Uh, and then their their cornerbacks haven't been that good. And they also have that really weird thing where they had Eric Rowe covering Alshon Jeffrey earlier. And then whenever they put Stephon Gilmore on them, it really kind of helped out their pass defense too. And New England, I mean, Phil, and Philly's you know, problem on defense, I think they got, after rewatching the game, I said they got more pressure than I thought when I first watched it live, but they didn't get enough. And then their cornerbacks play seven yards off, which is something that you, that's really impossible to do against a uh, new England, be able to cover well because they have so many quick little receivers and they tackled well after they gave up, you know, 25 yard completions, but they were just playing so far off. They gave up, you know, so many open windows and they didn't rush the passer for 98% of the game. It wasn't until Brandon Graham came up with his sack and his strip sack. And then the last drive new England had to try to come back with zero timeouts from their own, you know, 13 yard line. It took until that point for them to get pressure. And that was surprising because of how good the Eagles defensive line is and 
how deep it is. But at the same time, New England's offensive line is in pass blocking great. They're great against Jackson as well too. So I mean, I don't think it's gonna we're gonna be in for this offense explosive for the next three years or so. But I think what's gonna happen is we're gonna see more multiple offenses with more you know, multiple players in every play with like the RPOs, just which is really just kind of like a, a further push off from you know zone reads. But I'm not gonna go so far as say that we're gonna see you know, 40 to, you know, 35 points games the norm and that defenses have to do a lot more to catch up. Uh, I just think it was just kind of like the way this game played out. Interesting. So uh, I will be on an island. I'm going to say, yeah, I still think it's going to happen because I, I think that if you look at some of these quarterbacks and we can just look at, you know, the dude who wears number four for the Texans is that he's the type of guy who, who really changes the profile of your offense single-handedly. And, it's it's you know this is what Nick Nick Foles is running. This is what Carson Wentz is running. So I, I, I still I, you know I think that at some point the defenses are going to really have to adjust to the offense. And I don't know what that means. I think the biggest thing, the closest thing I've maybe seen to it, is using safeties like in, in nickel packages instead of a linebacker to get more speed out there. And they are. Uh, I think the other thing. Yeah, and, but you know it's like the Cardinals really seem to, to yeah. uh, lead on that, right? With a day on Buchanan, or, um, or Eddie Pleasant playing uh, nickel yeah. linebacker. <laughs> yeah, Eddie Pleasant. Yep. Especially well, because we didn't have anybody else who could cover and play linebacker. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> and also the the other thing that's going to be interesting is what we're seeing a real lack of talent in is offensive line talent, right? So how is that going to play out? And if you have these speedier RPO type things, where you're getting rid of the ball it negates a lot of the pass rush. So I, it's going to be real interesting. I think I, I still think, and I, maybe it's just because I'm projecting the hell out of it, but I still think we're going to see some sort of change where the defense is going to get really left behind. Hmm. Well, and I mean, like, I feel like this, this usually happens every year. Like we saw the same thing happen with the, the zone retaking off and defense and the things to adjust and stop it. Um, and you also see a lot of these offenses too, and they kind of do something different for a year it usually works for one year and then next year their offense drops off, you know, and falls off or it doesn't necessarily fall off a cliff, but it, it, you know, you see teams who make a, like a jump in offense DBA from, you know, like 25th to fifth. And then you see them fall down to 16th the year after. And some of that simple, you know, regression is in the mean, but I think a lot of it also is defenses have a whole summer to plan and attack and you know, stop this offense after they did something new too. So I don't, I don't like, I think it, this, this sort of offense is going to be more out there and more available and used more often. I think for the reasons that you outlined, it make complete sense. But I, I think defenses are going to be able, after spending a whole summer, I think they're going to be able to do a good job to be able to catch back up and know how to stop this stuff. I see your argument. Yeah. And it's weird, too, because I, I feel like offenses will get, like, a little bit of an advantage, and then things get knocked back in equilibrium, and they get knocked out a little bit with, the, you know, either way, offenses or defenses, they get knocked out. And so I do, I do think that offenses are ahead – uh, in a way, but I mean, league-wide scoring was down this year too by about three points as well. So I'm not, I'm not so far going to say that offenses are ahead. I just think like that was just the way this game played out. Yeah, well, it, you know, if you go back to the NFL as a copycat league, then a lot of people I can see are already sitting at home. A lot of coaches are sitting at home with pencils in their hand, going RPO. And I really <laughs> like that group back in the '70s. <laughs> RPSB <RPSV> wagon. <laughs> that, you got my a, reference. Yeah, that's gonna be a good uh, fancy football name for next year. 
<laughs> yeah, and I also I was laughing in the broadcast too because everything's an RPO now. Like even if it's just a play action pass or an outside zone run, it's an RPO. Right. Every single thing is, and so I think it's going to take some time also for just our dumb brains to understand it better too. But I, I also really want to see more teams go for and forth after watching this game. And you see Pearson do it, the, the throw to Foles on the two-yard line, and then also the big conversion later in this game, too, because we don't see enough of it. I'm mean, like the big thing to come out of football analytics whenever it first kicked off. And really, like, football analytics has been so stagnant, too. Uh, I'm not smart enough to, to lead the frontier at all. But the biggest thing to come out is just, like, the high-variance stats, you know, how regression and how the short schedule play has such a big impact on it. And the second thing is just like going for and fourth down maximizes your chances of winning. And like, I hope like these, these coaches who are so risk averse and so afraid to go for it. You know, saw what the Eagles did and said, Hey, you know, if I kicked a field goal here, we probably would have lost this game. If I punted there, we probably would have lost that game. And just like, you have to see that somebody has to make that step and make that action and they have to see it and realize it works. And then, Hopefully more teams do it because I think with more going for it, less punts, less field goals, and then the game's better, and it will make things more interesting. And also it will make the teams better as well too. And as a Texans fan with Bill O'Brien there, you know, I, I think the best example you can always point back to is the division round against New England where they, they had a chance to beat New England for the first time ever. And Bill O'Brien kicked two field goals, uh, and that was a big reason why they lost. And another big reason was because of, you know, Namor Jackson, of course. But – you know, he still had chances within his control to maximize Houston's chance of winning that game, and he absolutely didn't. So I'm hoping that coaches like him, you know, learn a lot from Peterson in this game too. Yeah, and, and it, what was also funny is the day before, uh, New York Times posted an article about why teams are doing it wrong and not going for it on fourth and short. So the knowledge base is out there. I mean, this is stuff we've we've talked about for years. Is that you have to you have to be aggressive. Yeah. In these sorts of situations, and and especially in the playoffs, because your sample size is one, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I, I love it. I loved how aggressive Peterson was. It, it was. I think I was actually sexually turned on a couple moments during that game, going fourth down. Yes. Wow. <laughs> you know, sort of thing. Because it's just we as Texas fans, we we don't. Kubiak was also very conservative. Ninety-five percent of NFL coaches are super conservative. It's just the nature of that beast. But the one thing that also came out, I, I remember this a few years ago, this is a total aside, there was a, a team, a high school team, that, like, never yeah. punted on fourth down. They went for it on every time. And they had, a, like, a successful run for, like, seven years and because they, they just did not punt the ball on fourth down. They were beating everybody. You know, it, was, it was, like, this long extended streak. I think it was in Arkansas or something. But it's, yeah, like, there is, there is, yeah, it's, there is knowledge out there that it's, that fourth and two, go for it. If you're on your own, yeah. you know, on your own 12, maybe not. <laughs> but if you're on, like, the 50, go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, I know that what you're talking about. I think that was that Tuesday morning quarterback article that was, like, 7,000 words long that Greg Easterbrook or whatever wrote, and he always talks about that team. And I remember reading that when I was in, like, high school and, like, in the computer lab or whatever. And they're like, yeah, and they lost the state championship because they went for it in this situation. Their team scored the short field. But, you know, the coach was just after, like, yeah, I mean, we're going to lose like that. We're going to lose playing our game, you know. Right. Exactly. Uh, Lose playing your style. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing about the Pearson aggressiveness was interesting. That will will never be talked about again. But I feel like at the very end, 
uh, he let me down by kicking that field goal there. They had, you know, third and five. They kind of ran the ball to, to you know, pull the clock down some more. And then they kicked the field goal to make an eight-point game. And, like, at that point, like, I was, I was dying for him to go for it. I was like, you came all this way. You can convert here and just seal the game. Just please just go for it. You're up by six anyways, you know. Who cares? And uh, or you're up by five anyways. You know, they have zero timeouts. You know, they're not going to score. Just go for it. He didn't kick the field goal. I was upset about that. So I feel like he kind of lived out at the end of the game. But, uh, you know, it all worked out for him anyways. That's great. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yes, that's it's very true. Like, like you've been – I could see the logic in that one. But, yeah, still, it was, it was kind of a letdown. <laughs> yeah, and I guarantee you the analytics and the masses, they should have went for it there. And, like, he was aggressive for, like, 98% of the game and just kind of stopped at that point. Uh, yeah, one of the – I guess like the weirdest thing to me about this game we talked about earlier was the Philadelphia defensive line. They're struggling at pressure. And they made one play this entire game, and that was, you know, Graham's strip sack of Tom Brady. Did you see anything live at all that kind of – really brought to your mind about why Philadelphia struggled to get to the passer at all? I, the one thing, two things stuck out at me. Uh, I mean, just overall, their play. Uh, Fleming, the right tackle, had a fantastic yeah. game. Nate Stalder, fantastic game. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I saw that they did really well is they were handing off rushers, like, just like perfectly. Yeah. I, I just, I, I don't even remember seeing a mistake until Brandon Graham that they made handing off a stunt or anything like that. They were playing with such precision that it was just, it was beautiful to watch. Again, I fell in love. I talked about uh, Fleming a little bit that I, I would kind of be, he is a uh, unrestricted free agent. I would maybe love to see if he can come play left tackle for your Texans. Cause I think that kid's got talent big time. Um, but he was, he was beautiful as a right tackle. Sauter was wonderful. It was, it was almost a perfect game, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think Fleming would be great right tackle in Houston too. Uh, I, I'm going to butcher his name, but I know their offensive line coach, Scaramechia, whatever it is. He came out of retirement after you know, New England got destroyed by Denver in the AFC Conference title game when they had like 25 pressures and only blitzed like 13% of the time. And Bob Miller had three sacks and all that. And, I mean, their offensive line has been awesome the past two years, kind of with some scraps, especially at your center and left guard. But, yeah, that was one of the things I saw is they passed out blocks really well. There was no stunts. And they also did a really great job you know, doubling on the interior. They didn't like Graham or Cox beat him at all. And uh, Solder and, you know, Fleming are their, be- are their best pass blockers. And they handled all those situations one versus one. Uh, I really loved how aggressive Solder was in pass protection. Like, he was he was not waiting for guys to come into him. He was going out there and attacking and coming after, you know, Barnett every time and Chris Long every time. And it really took them by surprise. And the, the strip sack, you know, Shaq Mason didn't do an awful job. He just did his hands on uh, Graham first, and that was what killed him on that play. And, you know, Brady wasn't expecting it all. It's having to turn the other way. And interior pressure comes at you quick, and it can't to Brady too quick on that time. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I just walked inside the house. I'm going to hand it back to you to continue to talk while I get some water. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, and, and both these offenses – you know, they combined for the most yards ever in the Super Bowl um, in this game. And I think the main reason why New England did was because Philadelphia played so much off-man coverage. But it kind of worked out for Philadelphia a little bit because they tackled really well in the secondary. They didn't give up any yards at all after catch. Uh, they swallowed guys up whenever they had these you know, passes come into them. And on the other end with 
with Philadelphia getting the ball. I think it was mainly the result of New England just kind of being bad defensively and how they've been all year. They couldn't get a pass rush in all this game. That's front seven defender with Malcolm Brown. He's been, been very good all year, but you're not going to get a pass rush with him. You need your linebackers to do more. They didn't do, do a whole lot at all uh, in the run game. And Philadelphia ran for you know, 120 plus yards in this one, too. And so, like, you know, both these sides just really went, you know, back and forth a lot in it. Uh, when New England was running the ball, the biggest thing I saw was they did a really good job taking advantage, uh, take advantage of Philadelphia's, you know, three and nine technique sets on passing downs, where they, mm-hmm. by default, they had such huge gaps in the defensive line of scrimmage that they were able to make, you know, one block and then they're gone. And they, took, they did a really good job taking advantage of that. And I think Philly did as well, too. We're just running on passing downs. Uh, worked out really well for both those squads as well. Yeah, it, it, it was shocking going back, and, and you know, you knew that they were, especially Eagles, were successful on the ground. I think they averaged what six yards a, a carry or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's that's you can't, you know, this you don't you don't use the run to set up the pass. You use the pass to set up the run, and you can see that's the kind of damage that that the Eagles did, and Nick Foles was able to do. Is man, Ajaye and Legarrette Blount. Fine running backs, but they're not that good. Yeah, uh, Blunt was 14 for 90. Ajayi was 9 for 57. On runs up the middle, they averaged 10.33 yards per carry. They had nine attempts for 66 yards. On runs on the left end, they averaged 8.75 yards a carry. And, you know, New England had a good job running the ball as well, too. Uh, Wyatt had seven carries for 45 yards. Lewis had nine for 39. And Burkhead had three for 18, too. And they averaged 5.86 yards up the middle. But they struggled to run the ball outside of tackles, especially to the, the right side in this one. Yeah, and one other thing I wanted to say, and I don't know if it was – it's just a me thing. I know it's a me thing. So I'm, I'm good with that. I'm old enough to be good with that. Um, is that whenever the announcers were bragging about New England's defense, weren't you just kind of LOLing? Yeah, I, Collinsworth's called one of the worst games I've ever heard. And I like Collinsworth, too. Yeah. He was just awful in this one. Yeah, you think the guy who, like, owns PFF, like, would know, like, have known the stats to see, yeah, that that they're not good. I don't know. I don't think they showed their little PFF rating on the telecast before, and he didn't know who was good or not because they didn't show that number for him. (laughs) Right. And also, that Ertz thing drove me up a wall where Ertz ran that slant route. He takes three steps, dives at the goal line, the ball pops at the goal line, and he doesn't, and he doesn't know if it's a catch or not. And really, the only thing that happened was that Collinsworth was wrong. And rather than just say, you know, Al, I made a mistake, Al. That's by far a catch. It's the touchdown. Instead of just saying that and ending it there, we had to listen to 12 minutes of him being confused on whether or not it's a catch, and also go back to that play later on, you know, in, in the game with, you know, four minutes. I was like, yeah, who knows about this call? That completely changed this game. Al, just like Chris, you're wrong. Just say you're wrong. Let's stop having this conversation. It's okay to be wrong sometimes. <laughs> You're so right. No, that, that that was ridiculous. I don't – I couldn't even follow his logic on how it was. The ball never hits the ground. It was never – Yeah, I don't and, get it it. Crossed the, and it crossed the goal line, too, and he has control. And then anything that happens after crossing the goal line doesn't matter either. It was all stupid. Anyway. Yeah. The the Clement catch was kind of weird, though, that one that full in double coverage – in the back of the end zone where he, he has it, he takes two steps in, 
and the ball kind of pops out. He redrafts control and gets one foot in, and the other steps in the white. And, you know, that one, I, I could see that call going either way. Um, I didn't fully – like, I could – if they turned it down, I wouldn't be upset or wouldn't argue it. If they took it as a catch, I wouldn't argue it. I think it's kind of the problem with the catch rule to begin with, too, where I think it should, should be if you catch it, you get two feet in, whatever happens after that, you know, it's a catch, you know. Yeah, and, and you're not wrong. I guess the only – it would have irked me, I think, because – they called it a touchdown on the field. They called it a touchdown on the field. And that's really what it came down to me is because looking at it in real time, it looked like a touchdown catch to me. Yeah. Looking on the replay, sure, it's a little bit more questionable. But, at, you know, if you've ever played football and caught a football, you can have control of it and, and it's like you don't have both arms or both hands on it, right? You've still got control mm-hmm. of it. And that's what it seemed like to me Clement had. Is he had – it wasn't the best control in the world. But he still had control, so I, I felt like it was a catch. I, I like I, I, yeah, I agree with that, and I'm, yeah, I don't have anything else to add to that. And you know, Foles was, I know we talked on the after the Thomas Kyle game, Foles was six for seven for 327 yards on throwing passes, 15 yards down the field, and um, against Atlanta, he attempted one throw that turned to a pass interference penalty, and everything was just quick and short and quick and short, and he really took advantage of Minnesota's. You desire to play press coverage and how aggressive their safeties were, and just made some spectacular throws. And he looked like you know 2011 Nick Foles that threw for 27 touchdowns and two interceptions. And so I didn't know what Foles we were going to see in this game. And this Foles was the Foles we saw against Minnesota. He could throw the ball downfield uh, consistently and you know, constantly hitting Jeffrey down the sideline uh, a few times since Smith down the sideline. And so in this one on deep passes, he went four for nine for 92 yards which comes out 10.2 yards in attempt. There were two touchdowns and one interception. The one interception wasn't even his fault either. And uh, he was, you know, really great as well. Yeah, if you're going to tell me that, that Nick Foles was going to be chucking the ball 50, down, 50 yards down the field at any point in that game, I just would not have believed you. Yet, that's why they won. They were aggressive. They were, they, they, the Patriots had to watch their – they had to watch the backside. Again, something else we've talked about podcast many times you have to push the ball down the field to be successful you at least have to put that in the back of their minds because if you're just going to dink and dunk all game the teams are, are they're going to hit you yeah and you you can't let defenses play single safety against you like that's just it's a slap in the face you're it it's derails an insult. Your run game. <laughs> yeah it derails your run game it derails your quick passing game it derails your screen game like defenses want to play one safety looks because they can do whatever they want and if you allow them to do that, you really are just killing all your chances to win. Yep. Um, and so, it's like with Foles after this game, he's currently under contract in Philadelphia throughout next year. Uh, Carson Wentz is reco- recovering from ACL surgery. You know, he's going to be the starting quarterback as soon as he's healthy. So, what do you think Philly's going to do with Foles? Are they going to try to flip him into a first-round pick? Are they going to keep him around you know, a- as a starter until Wentz is fully healthy? have them as a backup just in case, or are they going to get greedy and try to you know, break up what they have and, and get some picks for them? What do you think is going to happen with them? I think they're going to hold on to them. So, you know, Nick Foles, I think Nick Foles understands who Nick Foles is, which is maybe a borderline starter for a bad team, but a really good backup quarterback. And I think that he's he, he, really, he went to Kansas City last year after he got cut. Yeah. He went into the Eagles. 
I, I think that there's like a major loyalty thing here that they know how to use him, and I think he's just going to go with that. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's, who can sit behind Carson Wentz and maybe won another Super Bowl or two. That's not a bad career. Yeah, and especially, I mean, he hit, he got paid, too, a little bit. Um, it's not like he's he's struggling for money at all by any means. And I forgot he played in Kansas City last year, and he wasn't very good there either. Like, I remember, like, his first half was kind of interesting. And then from that point on, he was just, you know, pretty bad. And I never thought I was going to watch Nick Foles play again. Right. <laughs> and, you know, here we are. And, like, I, like I'm, I'm, like, I'm not surprised by how well he played in the Super Bowl. But I am surprised by this run. And I think also one of the important things to remember uh, going forward is, like, whenever you have a backup quarterback come in, as long as it's not Tom Savage or TJ Yates, you know, like somebody's completely terrible, it usually takes about four or five weeks. It t- I think it takes about four weeks for an offense to fully, like, come together playing football. And you kind of see that how the first month of the season is always bad where these offenses don't know what's going on. And I think you can kind of take that same logic and extrapolate to backfield quarterbacks or backup quarterbacks where – you know, it takes four weeks or five weeks for them to know what they do well in this offense and what plays they want to run and how they work with the rest of the, the team after, you know, being the backup as long as they have. And so I think maybe that's what we saw with Foles. But, again, like, he was awful for, you know, the last uh, three weeks of the season. He was – he wasn't bad against Atlanta. He was able to do just enough. But he was just simply spectacular these last two weeks. So, uh, I don't know. I, I still don't know how I feel about Foles. Like, he was awesome. I'm going to accept that for what it is. As far as going forward, like, I'm not feeling one way or the other by any means. Yeah, I I think that there are some guys who are smart enough to understand what they are. And if you look at his career stats, and I took a quick peek, I admit, he's he's really not the best quarterback in the world. He he really isn't. So if if you, you know, kind of are in touch with that, you're okay with that, and he's 29 years old, I think he he plays next year at 30, that, you know, if you're okay with it and then saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to make $7 million, uh, uh next year. I think it's, that's the number next year he makes uh, first thing on the roster all season. He's going to make $7 million next year and sit behind Carson Wentz, and you think, hey, you know what? If I can make like $4 million a year sitting behind Carson Wentz with this team, with, with Doug Peterson, who makes me better, I'm good with that. Yeah. I don't know. And, and I also think there may be some Joe Flacco potential here at Foles, too, where he had this great playoff run. Uh, similar to what I mean, I think like the run he had these last few games is the exact same sort of thing we saw with Flacco during that postseason run, where he couldn't throw any interceptions, he could throw the ball downfield to anybody, uh, and things just you know worked out. And I could see something happening here with Foles as well too, where he caught fire. Uh, he played against some. You know, Minnesota's not a bad defense, but he caught fire throwing the ball downfield. He played against a bad defense in the Super Bowl, and now all of a sudden he's paying his money. He's not you know good enough for you know, he's getting paid. And so I can see that happening as well, too. I can see a team giving up a first-round pick for him, uh, maybe like in the in the 20th range, like Arizona maybe giving up a first-round pick for him, and then having that completely, you know, not work out, uh, similar to how Flacco is the least valuable quarterback in football, which people forget they extended Flacco even after that awful contract and gave him even more money. And uh, and he's, he's the reason why, you know, the Ravens have been so, you know, hamstrung the past four seasons. Yeah. Uh, I don't so have that, that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. That whole thing still makes me laugh, though. The, and I remember after the Eagles lost, the Bengals get knocked out of the playoffs. I kind of went on some, like, ra- when the Ravens lost to the Bengals get knocked out of the playoffs. I went on some, like, you know, Ravens uh, fan communities, whatever you want to call them. And everybody on there was complaining about the defense. 
and for Ozzie Newsom for investing in the defense, not the offense, and this and that. And the problem with a team completely is Joe Flacco, and that's why the team is bad. But not one person said anything bad about Flacco. Uh, so that whole thing made me laugh. Joe Flacco is like the the worst non-Tom Savage starter in the NFL. Like yeah. he started the opening day last year. He's terrible. And he has been. He had one run. You you nailed it. He had one run. That's it. And it was beautiful. And you can't take that away from him. It was one of the most spectacular things you ever <laughs> see. Uh, I, like, I'm going I'm to ride that. I'm going to ride about it here pretty soon. Maybe next month I'm going to go back and watch all of those four playoff games and just have my, my brains blown out of the back of my head by how spectacular he was for that one month, you know. Yeah, but even then he had to rely upon total blown coverage against the Broncos to even have that, that run. one play. But the rest of it he was awesome, though. I mean, that was one touchdown, yeah. like the 14 he threw that postseason. He threw 13 touchdowns yeah. and one interception in four games. <laughs> You'll remember that one, but like, he was awesome the whole time. Uh, the Jacoby yeah, Jones touchdown yeah. against the Niners in the Super Bowl. There was, there was plenty of crazy things he did. Well, yeah, he threw a touchdown to Jacoby Jones. How impossible is that? Like an 86-yard touchdown, Jacoby Jones, too. <laughs> and Jones had a kickoff return that game for a touchdown also. Oh, God. Yeah, it's funny how Jacoby Jones, like, totally blows the playoff game against the Ravens and then goes on and wins the Super Bowl with the Ravens. I think he was all, all the entire time – he was a spy for the Ravens. Well, and also Yates threw three interceptions and had like 112 passing yards in that game. And that was the reason why they lost. I know Jones had that tumble, but the reason why they lost was because of Yates. And I watched that yeah. game after Match. Foster. Yeah. I watched that game after Foster retired and was a, just so angry watching Yates play that game. Yeah. With Matt Schaub, I think we go to the Super Bowl. I really do. Ugh. I think so too. Damn it. I think they beat Baltimore for sure. I don't think that's, there's a question yeah. about that, but yeah, my heart. Um, so if Foles does get traded, there's a this is probably the most interesting quarterback market we've had uh, that I can remember as far as free agency goes, because Bradford, Bridgewater, and Keenan were all free agents. Uh, Kirk Cousins is a free agent right now, but they, he may get franchise tagged and trade. Uh, who knows what's going to happen there? Tyrod Taylor may be available too. Uh, who do you think is the best free agent quarterback available this summer, and where do you think he goes? I don't think it's a question that it's Kirk Cousins. And if uh, – I mean, I'm a big Kirk Cousins fan. Just have no doubt about that. Uh, I think – I really think he ends up in Denver. I, I think that he mm-hmm. sees what they've got there defensively and that they've been doing okay with uh, Trevor Simeon and – and, and uh, you know, redacted and, you know, those sorts of guys there. And Paxton Lynch, isn't, it doesn't look like he's ever going to become a thing. I think Kirk Cousins is kind of looking at Denver and saying, look, it's a really cool city. Pot's legal. This looks pretty nice. <laughs> and he, he, he's and they can sign him. They don't have a ton of cap room, but they can sign him. And he can go over there, and they're an instant playoff contender, an instant favorite. So mm-hmm. I, 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 my gut tells me that's where he's going. The rumors to the Jets, I think, are total BS. I think he would. I don't think he would go to the Jets because why? Why would you want to go to the Jets? They might offer me, you know, a couple million a year more. I want to go win. Yeah. Well, I think the Jets are going to be. They. I think they have a really good young defense. Well, their defense isn't really good, but they have a young defense. I think is like. I think they have a defense that can be really good. Their skill players are underrated. Uh, they have some issues in the offensive line, but I don't think Cousins would be bad there. My. My thing about Cousins is that I think he's a, a really good quarterback, but I don't think he's good enough where you can 
be a constant playoff team if you're paying him $30 million a year. Like, I don't think you can build a team with him getting $30 million and have to fill up the rest of your roster. Yeah. Uh, but I think Great. if you're paying him $20 million a year, you're going to be a playoff team every single time. But that's going to be the really interesting thing is how much he goes for. He can completely, I think, derail a team if he's, if he's paid, you know, a $30 million a year sort of deal. Yeah, I, I just completely agree. It's, he is, he's not Tom Brady, but he is, I think he's probably in the top eight quarterbacks in the NFL. I think he's somebody who can win you games. He can win you a playoff game. He's not the sort of guy like where he's not going to win you a playoff game, like a you know Brian Hoyer kind of guy. Can't rely on him to do it. I think he can, but you're just going to want to have other people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it, it's also so weird too. You think back like on the the Washington team with RG three and Cousins. He said, you know, yeah, RG three is going to be out of the league in two years. And Kirk Cousins is going to make thirty million dollars. You know, it's it's just so weird, like how in this league, like how fast things happen because how short the season is, how you know, short players' careers can be, and just the way the salary cap is, and how quickly you can overturn a roster. Uh, things move so fast, and things are so different year to year. And, you know, it makes it it makes it fun the constant turnover. Yeah. And, and going back to Cousins too, like I'd rather have Bradford at you know twenty million dollars. I'd rather have Keenum at fifteen million dollars. I'd rather have Tyrod Taylor at $15 million. I'd rather have those guys at you know, those sorts of prices than have Kurt Cousins for you know, $30 million. And so I think it's going to be really, really fascinating to see you know, what happens with this contract and how much he gets paid to play football. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm getting texts right now that, that um, one of our favorites, Huggy the Bear, is trolling the, the Colts blog and has convinced them with a fake account that um, – <laughs> that Jeff Fisher is interviewing for the head coaching vacancy. So it has me a little distracted. <laughs> and that, that's just so fantastic. Oh my gosh. Like you're actually fully buying it. Is it the Colts wow. SB Nation site or something different? Yeah. Yeah. The Colts SBN site. I hope Jeff Fisher goes <laughs> there. That, you know, I, I, I think, uh, let me talk about this now too, that you brought up. I don't have anything else to say about the Super Bowl at all, but uh, with Josh McDaniels, if you didn't hear the breaking news, He's not. He already stepped down as the head coach of the Colts. He's back out of it. Now, one of the reasons is because Belichick is going to stay next year. Uh, they're probably going to offer him more money. Uh, his family's there. He missed the building and all that sort of stuff. And also, you have Tom Brady. He just put up 600 yards in the Super Bowl. Uh, I think that's a that's a nice spot to stay. And so he backed out. And the other thing, I, I think Andrew Luck is dead. Like I don't think he's ever going to play football again. I don't know. I think something has to be going on there. Because if you are McDaniels, I don't think you're going to come into much better head coaching spot with luck, with a top five pick, with, you know, $80 million in cap space this year, and some pieces on defense as well, too, that I know that you disagree with. But that's a nice situation to come in and coach. And for him to back out like this so dramatically and stay in New England for another year, I think that really is a, is a, that really makes me afraid for, like, the future of Andrew Luck and his entire career. I think those are good points. I think the one that I'm kind of looking at is that I bet you I think that's what – yeah, I think I think that's the big play here. And, and the funny thing is, is that's basically – if you know your, your football history, and I'm going way back, and I might be getting it wrong, but if I remember correctly, Bill Belichick kind of did this sort of thing with the Jets in 90, about 90, 91, somewhere around there, where kind of the same deals were kind of made with him. So um, – that's going to be real interesting, but I bet you if, if 
if you're Bill Belichick tonight after this news, you're thinking, wow, do I have a year left too? Because it's got to be what that means. Yeah, and that, that's interesting as well. Um, but, yeah, yeah, that may be the same case too. I mean, but even then, like, if Belichick's gone two years with Brady still there, you know how good of a job is that in moving forward, you know, how old is Kraft and that whole sort of thing too. I think when you, when you have an opportunity like India's, you know, right now and Lux Healthy, I know something that's worth jumping on. Yeah, and I bet you're right about Luck. I, who knows what – nobody knows what's going on with his shoulder. Like, I guess the last I heard, he was going to Europe for weird blood transfusions or something for his shoulder. He's so, getting shot, maybe getting shot with stem cells also. Stem cells, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, who knows? And the last thing I saw was some Pro Football Rumors tweet, uh, an article that said he's going to begin a throwing program soon. But that says nothing about him actually throwing the football around, you know. Right. Uh, so I guess before we kind of do a quick outlook on, you know, the 2018 season, maybe something more about this as well, too. Is there anything else you want to add about the Super Bowl at all? Uh, no, I think I've um, mostly driven to the ground. Let me go I'm just kind of checking to see if there's anything else. I just – one thing I, I, I did want to add, add one more thing is that throughout my childhood, it felt like, and, and especially like through the 80s and the 90s, it felt like every freaking Super Bowl was a blowout. The Super Bowls we've had like the past four or five years, every one of them was like, okay, is that the best one or is this the best one? Is this the best <laughs> one or is that the best one? Yeah. It's been freaking amazing, and it's been just so cool. They've been like real freaking games instead of blowouts. And it's just uh, my son and I were talking about it, and it's like, well, did you like this? Did you like, you know, last year's more when they came back? Is You know, because he said that was the best Super Bowl I'd ever seen. I was like, but did you like last year's when they came back and beat the Falcons? He's like, oh, yeah. And so what about a couple of years ago with the Seahawks in the face? He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's been a lot of fun, and it's just such a great change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there was that run in the you know, 2000s, late 90s, where it wasn't like this at all. And, yeah, I, I read that as well, too. And it's a lot more fun whenever the Super Bowl is fun, too. And the nice thing for me about being like an adult instead of a, a stupid drunk child, you know, in school and stuff is that like, I can remember Super Bowls now. Like I don't wake up the next day and be like watching the highlights of the game. being like, I kind of remember that play. I vaguely remember that play. I kind of sort of remember that. Cause we had some, you know, huge Super Bowl parties for like the you know, last few years I was in school. The last three years I was uh, up there. And so it's nice to be like, you know, adult and make chili all day and drink water, have a cup of coffee, you know, really sit there and enjoy the game. And you remember how, the whole thing. And, uh, and it's been even better if the game's been actually good. And the last blowout I guess we've had was that Denver Seattle one. That was a blowout from like the second snap when it went over Manning's head right. and there was a safety and they never got close to even having a lead after that point either. Yeah. But luckily that's been the outlier lately. So yeah. Uh, so for this 2017 season, who is your your favorite player this year to watch, and who is your favorite team to watch this year? Favorite player is easily Deshaun Watson. I'm, that's not even close. It was it was such a thrill having him to watch, even you know for that limited time. It's it's you know reminds me of the girl I dated back my freshman year in college for a couple of weeks, and it didn't last very long. But damn. Um, my favorite team I think has really been the Eagles. Um, I, I'm kind of a closet Eagles fan in a lot of ways anyway. 
going back to, again, my childhood, uh, Ron Jaworski, Harold Carmichael, you know, those are some of the guys I really enjoyed playing when I was a kid and, and saw what professionals they were and what they did on the field. So I've always kind of been a closet Eagles fan. And, and uh, when I look at, like, Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham and Chris Long, and they had Jordan Hicks before he got hurt, and those guys that they have on that front seven of the defense, I look at them and I'm going, like, I get really excited about teams like that. And you throw in with their, that outstanding offensive line, so we're talking about a team that really focused on winning on both sides of the trenches. Anybody who's listened to me over the however many eight years I've been doing this podcast, you, win, you still win in the trenches. That hasn't changed at all. So you look at that front seven, you look at that offensive line, it, it's been the, I think it's probably been the Eagles for me, Matt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my, I, I fell low with the Eagles late. It wasn't until the postseason. It wasn't until, like, after – the Vikings game, whenever they completely trounced them. Like I went back and watched some condensed versions, went back and watched video to write a Super Bowl preview. I, I never got the chance to write. And like going back and looking at the trades that they made and learning more about Peterson and doing more like research about the team. And uh, I got kind of, I got really sad that, you know, I didn't, I never like went in on the Eagles at all this year. Like even when they were eight and three with Wentz before he got hurt and then he got hurt. So they're not going to do with Foles. And then, you know, it's kind of the exact trap and the exact thing that everybody went through. Everybody turned them out. And I did the same thing with the Eagles, too. And uh, so I kind of – I really enjoyed watching them play, you know, later on. But it took me, like, until, like, the, the Minnesota win for me to actually enjoy and appreciate how good of a team they are. And that was because I was you know, completely wrong the entire year. Uh, and also, I like Philly, too. I've been there twice before. I'm going to go, again, Memorial Day weekend. And they have some really good donuts there. And there's a lot of good music that comes out there, too. But my favorite team I watched this year was the Saints. I just I like I really like running backs, especially after not liking running backs because they're getting drafted too high and paid too much. But like, it's really good to have running backs back, too. Uh, so watching Kamar and Ingram is a lot of fun. Like, Michael Thomas is way too strong for, like, the 185-pound frame he is. Right. Uh, seeing Drew Brees peer over the offensive line, barely, be, like, looking over Yosemite's backyard is, is hilarious. Uh, their offensive line was, I think, underrated this year, too. And, like, they actually had a defense, and it was fun, like, watching their defense, and Cameron Jordan's a swashbuckler. Uh, even though Marcus Williams had the, the big sap play this year, he was great this year. Marcus La- Marshall Lattimore was great this year. So I really enjoyed watching the Saints play, and uh, their games are usually really fun as well, too. Yeah, about Philadelphia, like, I think you and I might be the only two people outside of Philly who actually like it. <laughs> oh, yeah. it feels like that sometimes but I love I've told the story before I'm going to say it again I'll do it quickly but I was at a bar in Philly uh when we drafted Travis Johnson if you if you've ever been to Philly like the barmaids don't really want your your crap okay they're just not interested in you it doesn't matter what you look like they're not going to be interested in you and the barmaid at this uh, this dark dank joint saw the draft pick and she poured me a beer and gave it, gave it to me. She said, I, I am so sorry. And she, she bought a beer for me. And it was like <laughs> one of the most amazing moments of my life that a barmaid in Philly bought me a beer. So <laughs> which should tell you quite a bit about my life, generally speaking, but uh, no, it, it's, it's one of my all time favorite cities. The food's great. Uh, I, I do love the city. Lots of great architecture. Yeah. And the art museum is good there too. And, that Market Street terminal is, you know, fantastic, and uh, I'm I'm lucky where I'm able to, you know, have a job that pays me enough money where I can do things that I want to do and not have to worry at all. 
And so I'm I'm going to fly out to Boston, go to a Red Sox game. I go to Walden Pond Sunday, take a train from Boston to Philly, and hopefully I don't die because there's all these train accidents all the time. I'm just from the back of the train. And then I'm going to be in Philly, you know, Sunday night. I'm going to go to that terminal in the morning, go to D.C. for the day. And then my third band's playing the 59, the Gaslight Anthem. Who are my third band more because they're on hiatus? It's probably, it's George Mayer now. But they're playing my favorite album of all time from front to end uh, at this club in D.C. that I saw uh, a show at whenever I was living out there. And so I'm going to go to that on Memorial Day and then fly out Tuesday. So I'm excited for that trip. I'm excited to go to Philly for a little bit. And it should be fun to, to see people there a lot happier instead of, you know, you know, mean and all that, like they're made out to be by the media. Yeah, and, and hopefully nobody throws batteries at you. That's, I mean, it, it, that that hurts. It, it, it's painful. Yeah, as long as I'm not a Cowboys fan, I'll be okay. I can probably get away with wearing a Texas Rangers hat there and be all right. Probably, probably. Yeah, yeah I've watched them win 70 games this year. Uh, so is there, what, what did you learn most about from the 2017 season? <laughs> I learned that it's really important to evaluate evaluate your quarterbacks properly. Now that's kind of an ongoing learning experience, but the fact that Tom Savage started the first game of the season when it was so obvious that that Deshaun Watson was going to be incredibly better, I, I didn't think he was going to be what he did. But to me, it's like I don't know how you can look at Tom Savage. Okay, you got you either are looking at you're looking at Roseanne Barr over here, or you're looking at almost anybody else over here, and you you went with Roseanne <laughs> Barr. So it, it's and I realize how sexist that is. I apologize to any women who are who are listening to this. I, I do realize that, but it's it's it was asinine from the beginning, and it's. I'm I'm done. I have beaten that horse so bad. It's it's like the horse is not even a puddle anymore. It's so dead, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, I feel like I learned a lot, a lot this year. I guess the biggest thing I learned just individually was just like doing. I've been trying to learn more about you know routes and coverages. So learning more about that. I don't really read any football stuff at all during the season because I don't want to you know, kind of dilute what I think about and you control my brain whenever, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that isn't right, that seems right. Um, but that was the biggest, you know, things I learned as far as like a you know, specific scheme stuff, which is about how you get guys open and um, the way you attack coverages, where you put guys in conflict and kind of move from there were the, the biggest things. And then the same thing I kind of learned is I'm like, even I'm, I really don't like Bill O'Brien as a person because we had 11 weeks of awful football this year, uh, partly because of him. And I don't like his his punting all the time and his inability to do anything, even with a backup quarterback. And especially, and this is all just kind of sour because after watching the Eagles win like they did just now, like they were the Texans were in a much worse situation because of the general manager. But like still to win one game after losing to Sean Watson, also make that decision week one, uh, and just be as conservative as he's been, and just like just so rude about like being you know, mediocre uh, just made me really – and then watching the Eagles go through as much adversity as they did win the Super Bowl, it just really just – I'm just soured on Bill O'Brien. We have to watch him for five more years. Maybe, maybe who knows what happens there, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm yeah, he, 
he's he's not my favorite coach. And it's so funny. The it's you know, as we're talking about Bill O'Brien now, and I made a crack about him after the on our Super Bowl thread about you know how you can scheme around your players and put them in a position to win, or you can be Bill O'Brien. And it's and it's so funny that people still are dying on that Bill O'Brien hill that like he's the best coach ever in the history of coaching. And, and we point out week after week after week his shortcomings and what the good coaches do and what the bad coaches do. And it just seems like a really silly hill to die on that, that people keep – not only is it that they die on that hill, but they make themselves prostrate to Bill O'Brien before they die on the hill. And mm-hmm. I don't get it. It's just such a cult aspect to liking Bill O'Brien that it's, it's like, wow, it, 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 I mean, how much Kool-Aid did you have to drink? So I don't yeah. get it. Yeah, and I mean, like, the only thing he's done well as a coach is mold that offense around Watson for, you know, those six weeks. Everything other than that, you know, he's he didn't rebuild this roster. He wasn't the reason why they went from 2-14 and 14 to 9-7, and seven, you know. And uh, and he's won a lot of close games against bad teams. And that's what, that's what he's done. So hopefully he learned his lessons. Hopefully next year is better. But at the moment, you know, and after watching the Seagulls team and, you know, what they went through and still in football games, uh, I'm not I'm not the biggest Bill O'Brien fan at the moment. So to, in the show tonight, we had one listener question, and it came from Upper Texan. He said he has some personal news. He's going to resign as the Minister of Information for the Houston Texans <laughs> because he's now going to be the next head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. And so his question was, what changes should I implement as Colts head coach to make them a vassal for the Texans for the next 20 years? And uh, I think uh, just keep lying to Andrew Luck and mismanaging him for at least 10 more years because he may never play again the way it looks right now. Uh, so just keep that whole thing going, and that's that's more than good enough. So what, what, I missed the word that how they so how they stay bad for the next 10 years. Uh, he said how to make them a vassal of the Texans for the next 20, 20 years. Oh. Let them continue to be owned by Jim Ursay. Yeah, I like you know I like Ursay. Ur- seems like a cool guy as long as you get in trouble with the law once or you know, drink like a hundred beers with him one time. And vassal it means a holder of land by feudal tenure on conditions of homage and allegiance. It is a new word for me. It's a new word. <laughs> Outstanding. I kind of knew what it meant. Thank you for the exact description. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's like something, if I ever play Risk again, I know a word I'm going to be using all night long, you know. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Well, uh, that's all I have for tonight, and I, I guess is that all you have as well? Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to talk about, so hopefully one of my goals this off season, I kind of started it last off season, um, but I kind of want to. Uh, we don't have that problem anymore, so thank Durga for that. But I'm going to go through and start looking at quarterback plays and kind of doing scouting reports, very specifically on quarterbacks. Uh, kind of integrating what I've learned over the course of my 47 years stalking this earth, and uh, uh, and talk about that. I don't know how much I'm going to get to do. I'm not going to do film. I don't have time to go through. I just. I, I, you know, I work a lot and I have a wife and kids and all two of those have the flu right now. So that's been awesome. But um, uh, I just want to mention Baker Mayfield, y'all. Uh, I went to the University of Texas 
when I went to my first Red River shootout in 89, the uh, one of the guys we were with got jumped from behind by a couple of OU fans and got beaten, like, quickly. OU is not my favorite university in the world. In fact, I would burn it to the ground if given the remote chance to do so. Baker Mayfield's the real deal. I really am, am starting to think that. Not the real deal, Josh Allen. I think he is disaster dressed as a as a disaster because I can use the word I wanted to. So I'm hoping to come out with that. We'll talk about more specifics, maybe you know even here on the podcast. But wow, Baker Mayfield is really just blowing me away with his film. He can make all the throws. He has no fear. He pushes the ball down the field. He throws at a high completion percentage. He he throws his uh, receivers open. He is everything. I am just. I knew he was good. I watched him for too many years to, to you know, know he, he was good. When you watch his tape and you really focus in what, what he's doing instead of what your team is doing, being a Longhorn fan, he is really, I think he's going to be very good. And I, I know one of the big comps is, is um, Johnny Football for him. I think Johnny Football with much better throwing mechanics and no Coke habit. So it's, he's been, he's been a lot of fun to watch, Matt. Yeah, it's important to – not have a, a very large hole in your nose if you're going to be a good quarterback in football. Um, yeah, I mean, this. I guess this offseason, I don't know. I'm going to ride Texans pre- season review next week. You're um, right about Julian Davenport, Zach Cunningham, write the awards I usually write every year. Go inside the numbers and write an offseason kind of like primer for that. And then from there, I'll, I'll, fi- I'll find stuff I want to write. Um, I probably won't do any draft stuff until after – agency kind of comes to a close so you know in april or whatever and then i don't know i'm just kind of i'm just going to kind of read and see what i feel like doing from there uh hopefully you know my personal life mix up for it to get warm so i can just lay the grass and you know read uh Corey mccarthy novels again instead of having to do it inside my my home with the cold and the cold it's great weather to read the road in but uh the heart's sour at the moment so i know i'll still be riding though and then as far as the, as far as the podcast we're going to be off next week the week after, we're going to get Die Hard Chris on, and uh, you probably as well, and we're going to do a season awards thing uh, for that week. And then after that, we'll probably do an off-season primer, you know, maybe at the beginning of March. But we're going to we're gonna be in, you know, here and there until football starts again. And uh, I'm excited for football to be going for a while. I'm excited to do other things. Uh, but it's been a really fun season. It's been you know, a great time talking to you, you all throughout this year. And, you know, it's always a, it's always a pleasure on Tuesday nights. Yeah, definitely. It's it's. I think it's it's quite honestly about the most fun I have during the football seasons doing these. So yes, agreed. Well, great. Um, so well, again, thank you not only for me on for the night for the thank you not only for being on this entire season but for tonight as well. Uh, we'll be back on in two weeks live 7 p.m. Central. Thank you for listening about Red Radio. And my name is Matt Weston. And yeah, I'm so bad at that part, but. <laughs> Hey, sports fans, football season's here, and it's time to get in on the action with my bookie. 
MyBookie is the industry-leading sports betting website that offers real Vegas odds on football, baseball, and all your favorite sporting events. You can take a side, the total, or even fantasy points props. MyBookie lets you bet online and win big. Did the game already kick off? Don't sweat it. MyBookie has in-game live betting on every major league and event even esports. There's no better time to join MyBookie than today. Go to MyBookie to open an account and start winning. Use promo code CHAMPION when you register for your account and get a 100% sign-up bonus up to $1,000 on your first deposit. Bet today. Visit MyBookie's website or call 844-866-2387. That's 844-866-2387. Check them out today and use promo code CHAMPION for a 100% bonus. Terms and conditions apply for entertainment purposes only. Void where prohibited. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission. Or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out. And if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. <laughs> 